Well, we're going to start our uh, new chapter, chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians. If you're a visitor here today, uh, we preach through the Bible book by book, verse by verse, as the Lord allows us to. And we've been in the book of 1 Corinthians in the New Testament for a while. And uh, we are trudging along, finding wonderful truths from God's Word that help us understand how best we can live as God's people um, in a world that is clamoring to distract us and, and disrupt us from living lives as holy people. As a matter of fact, when you study your Bible, when you open the pages of Scripture, there is a great danger that happens every time you do. You are always in danger of bringing presuppositions to the text as you read it. Things that you believe because not you have read them in the Bible, but because you have just believed those things. You believe them because your parents believe them. You believe them because your favorite preacher believes them. Or you believe them because the culture has so pressed upon you that it's just easier to believe those things. We would say that in this world that we live in today, in 2023, the world is pressuring the church to believe things that are palatable to the world, that go against the Word of God. So much so that interpreters of the Bible are doing what we call theological and exegetical gymnastics when they read the Bible and interpret it, so that they can twist and manipulate the Scripture so that it fits certain presuppositions in their mind. For example, as long as you probably have grown up in the church, you have thought about the story of Sodom and Gomorrah as God judging a city because of the sin of homosexuality. But in the last some odd years, as an LGBTQ movement has swept through not only the the culture, but the church, we begin to now see and read the twisting of that story. So that as God called the people of Sodom as people acting wickedly because of immorality from the men in that community that were trying to basically attack sexually visiting men in the community, we, would, we knew that as a story of God's judgment upon the wickedness of sexual immorality. Now we're told in a, through a different lens that that story is actually God's judgment on a city that lacked hospitality. For example, one critic of the traditional view, John Boswell, states... Lot was violating the custom of Sodom by entertaining unknown guests within the city walls at night without obtaining permission of the elders of the city. When the men of Sodom gathered around to demand that the strangers be brought out to them, that they, quote, may know them, they meant no more than to know who they were, end quote. Now, folks, don't be lied too about that. The Old Testament has always used the word know to mean sexually know someone. And we have seen this twisting of the Word of God so that we might believe differently about what we've been taught when the pages of Scripture condemn 
all homosexual and all sexual immoral practices in general outside of the bonds of marriage between a man and a woman. And of course, this twisting of Scripture has found its origin in the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve are tempted by Satan himself to believe something different than what God said. And that has continued on. And now we get to the subject matter of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Which I know many of you have come prepared to hear about head coverings in the church. Head coverings in the church. What about these head coverings? What about should women be wearing hats or should they be wearing shawls or should they be wearing veils? Adam was trying desperately to find songs that fit with that and he just couldn't do it. And I gave him grace because I'm not even going to get to that topic today. He has a whole nother week to find songs to line up with prayer shawls in the church. Because the whole issue of head coverings isn't about head coverings. It's all about the design order of God's creation. And Paul gives us a beautiful introduction to a continual problem that not only was Paul facing in the day of Corinth, but we face today. See, just as we have fought the battle against the twisting of scriptures about these gender gender ideologies, 30 and 40 years ago, the church was fighting a different battle, a similar battle, about the twisting of scriptures about the roles of man and woman and the way in which God designed it. And folks, that is what chapter 11 is about. The very beginnings, verses 1 through 16, dealing with head coverings, is about the proper order that God has created in His creation between man and woman. Paul will deal with the customary head coverings, but the head coverings meant something. There was an improper balance, there was an improper interpretation with what God had done and what God had created between a man and a woman, And it was being displayed in the church. And that's what we're going to come to learn. But in the last 50 years, at least, there has been the raging battle. Before before culture and Satan could destroy the very fabric of gender and what a man is and what a woman is and how we define those very genders and sexes, we were first seeing Satan and his demons distract and disrupt the very design of God in the home between a man and a woman. We were seeing the very fabric of what a man and a woman does and their roles and their functions and their understanding of what God had created them to do and be. That was being destroyed at least 50 years ago in this country. So much so that two well-known pastors and authors, John Piper and Wayne Grudem, formed a council called the Council of Biblical Manhood and Womanhood to fight and counteract These attacks against the home. They write in their book, Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, a response to evangelical feminism. They write these words, quote, Men and women simply are not sure what their roles should be. Traditional positions have not been totally satisfactory because they have not fully answered the recent evangelical feminist arguments 
Moreover, most Christians will admit that selfishness, irresponsibility, passivity, and abuse have often contaminated the traditional pattern of how men and women relate to each other. But the vast majority, they write, of evangelicals have not endorsed the evangelical feminist position, sensing that it does not really reflect the pattern of biblical truth. Within our churches, we have long discussions and debates, and still the controversy shows signs of intensifying, not subsiding. Before the struggle ends, they wrote, over 30 years ago, they wrote, probably no Christian family and no evangelical church will remain untouched. Now, 30 years later, we see homes that have been destroyed. We see marriages that are not biblically based on proper biblical manhood and womanhood. And in doing so, we have to fight a harder battle. Because the church has allowed these twisted doctrines to come in, and we've allowed those things to settle as the proper view and the proper interpretation. And in doing so, not only have marriages struggled, but our children have struggled. And our children have had these redefined ideas of what a mom and a dad is and what a, a husband and a wife does. And in doing so, they are polluted in a proper view of biblical marriage and their role and purpose in the world as a man or as a woman. And so what I'm asking you to do as you enter the Bible, as you enter a sermon like this today, is do your best to cast out presuppositions. Cast them out. They do nothing but pollute the Word of God. You may not have had a proper view of husbands and wives in your family growing up. You know how you can know? Not by what Oprah says, not what by Dr. Phil or the View ladies say, but what the Bible says. What does the Bible say? How does it define your role as a husband, as a wife? What does the Bible say about your role as a woman and a man in the overall scope of, 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 of creation? And in understanding that function, you can glorify God by doing what He's designed you to do. If you don't push away those presuppositions, the very Word of God will offend you when we talk about biblical manhood and womanhood. It will rub you raw. Because everything in the world says that this is an outdated book, it's an outdated message, it has no bearing on a culture today, and if you believe that, you might as well change everything in it, including the Gospel. But if the Word of God is inerrant and sufficient and never changing, then what is applied to Paul's day, it applies to our day. It doesn't need to change. And so here we are looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And I'm going to spend today in a very different way. This is going to seem to you more like a, a, a theological word study than it is going to be a typical sermon. So I need you to hold on to me today very tightly. All right? Because I want you to understand that what Paul does here in this passage 
A man who is dealing with a very similar problem that we are dealing with in our culture today, where we want to blend sexes and we want to blend genders and we want to take away the distinctions in the family and in the home and in the church. And we want to say, everybody come and everybody can do and everybody can be. There's no distinctions in function or purpose. Paul was dealing with those same things that we are. And so he starts this chapter in a very wise and spirit-led way so that we might understand from the foundation where all, this issue, where all these issues can be solved. Now, as you know, as we have read, Paul is dealing with issues in the church in Corinth. Like a frequently asked questions um, correspondence between the Corinthian church and Paul. He is leading them and guiding them in different situations. Chapter 11 through chapter 14 will be about the proper order of many things. We're going to start off with the proper order of God's creation between a man and a woman and how that affects the, the situation in Corinth about head coverings. We're also going to see the proper order of the Lord's Supper in the church and how it is to be uh, uh, displayed and, and, and practiced and understood at the end of chapter 11. And then in verses tw- chapters 12 through 14, we're going to get in the real meaty topic of the use of spiritual gifts in the church. There's a lot to cover. 2024, 25, somewhere, we'll probably get out of these chapters. But we're going to begin in chapter 11. We're going to look at just three verses today. Paul begins his exhortation to the Corinthians dealing with the problems in the church. These problems were problems where there was abuses that were happening. Those abuses centered around what's most likely to be understood from these verses as a as a uh, a delimin- or an elimination or a degradation of the distinction between men and women in the church that's what was going on so much so that Paul will deal with head coverings because the head coverings which were a custom of that day were a way of that distinction okay so let me go ahead and and, and give you the spoiler to the movie You're not going to walk away here from this study in chapter 11, in my opinion, from what I say, feeling convicted to go buy head coverings, ladies. What you should understand, what you should come away from, is what is my proper place and role in the way in which God created me to function in society, to serve in society, to serve in the church, to serve in my home? What is the proper order? And am I, as a man or a woman, out of order? That's where we're going to land. That's what Paul's trying to communicate. So first, let's look at Paul calling us to be imitators of the head who is Christ. He starts off in verse 1, Be imitators of me, just as I am also of Christ. Now I praise you because he says, You remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. Now you'll remember Paul has transitioning, or he is transitioning from the study of Christian liberty. We will see 
that same idea of Christian liberty flow into chapter 11. But Paul is transitioning from Christian liberty to exhort the people to live holy lives, to imitate him in his patterning of loving the neighbors for the sake of the gospel as we had learned in the previous studies. So he's saying, hey, we've learned to love our our, our neighbors, to to look at them and, and be concerned for them. Why? So that we would not offend them, so we would make sure that we are not an obstacle to the gospel, that we would be doing such a thing so that we would not be claiming our rights in Christ over loving our neighbor. Therefore, Paul says, imitate me in that way. But Paul's imitation to mimic someone or something is only profitable and only good if we are mimicking someone who is mimicking Christ. Christ must be the center of our imitating. Christ must be the center of who we imitate. Don't imitate me as a follower of Christ if I don't look like Christ and act like Christ in the way that I live. It's not enough just to imitate your favorite religious friend. It's not enough just to imitate your favorite religious pastor or worship leader. If they don't reflect Christ, you are wasting your time. You're simply just imitating another person. Instead, imitation is only faithful as long as Christ is the sinner. Just as a, every spider web has a center, a starting point for the spider to work its way out to the outward regions. Every branch that is connected from every strand of the web starts in the origin. And the interconnectivity of the church must always begin with Christ, not to just look like each other. And so Paul is praising them and, and exhorting them to be imitators of Him as He is an imitator of Christ, to look holy and live holy as Christ lived, to sacrifice Himself as Christ sacrificed Himself for the sake of other people. And He even praises the Corinthians in chapter 1 or chapter 11, verse 2. He says, I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions as I delivered them to you. Paul is praising them, which is strange when we really feel like we're reading a letter where he's just really getting on their case, as our young people may feel. Do you ever feel like your parents are just on your case? I think that's how the Corinthians probably felt. Like, man, Paul just won't let it go. But the truth is, is that Paul, as a loving spiritual father and pastor, is is dealing with these issues because they are growing problems in their lives. And out of an act of love, Paul is displaying a character of pastoral leadership and care by addressing these issues. And so it's refreshing in verse 2 that Paul would take a moment and go, I praise you, but now let's get to some more problems, right? I praise you for remembering me, for including me in these discussions and these things, and for holding on to the traditions as I delivered them to you. Now we can understand the word traditions there as the word of God. Paul uses that same word in other passages like 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 15 where he writes, "So then brethren, stand firm, hold fast to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us." 
That's a great passage. Here we see a very good description from Paul to the church in Thessalonica that the traditions were the Word of God that were passed on orally and in written form in those letters. Folks, that's how we got the Bible. Oral tradition being passed on through the generations so that we might have written in a written form the things that the canon of Scripture has been solidified into so that we might have a Bible today. And Paul is praising them. You have clung to these things. You have held fast to these things. But now he must deal with the situation at hand. After his initial introduction in verse 11, or chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, he gives the good old but. But, I want you to understand, this is the meat of his topic for us today. An exhortation that I would define as number, the point number two, that we should be faithful to God-ordained headship. God-ordained headship. This is the order that God has created for man and woman. And what we will read here in verse 3 is that this is the order, this headship issue is the order of God in all of eternity as well. Look at verse 3. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man. And that the man is the head of a woman. And that God is the head of Christ. I'm going to teach you a Greek word today. It's an important Greek word. It's a Greek word that you should know, not because knowing Greek words is cool, but because knowing this word and understanding its proper interpretation is literally the hinge pin between if you are what we call complementarian or you are egalitarian. Now, those are big words, so bear with me. Complementarian is is that you believe in a true biblical manhood and womanhood a proper order of God ordaining and placing men in authority over women in the same way that God has placed male pastors in authority over people in the church. This is the purpose that Paul is dealing with here. The Greek word is kephale, and it means head. Kephale, and it means head. It's the word that's used throughout the Bible to literally refer to your physical head. That thing on the top of your shoulders that makes good or bad decisions. It is your head. But it also has other meanings that have been used, as I stated at the beginning of this sermon, to twist Scripture. Because a Greek word and a Hebrew word in the Bible oftentimes is used in many different various meanings, the way in which you study the Bible with the original languages is that you have to figure out what the author intended by the certain meaning of that word. Okay? So when you read that Christ is the head of every man, you automatically rule out that Christ is literally the physical head of every man. He is not on top of your shoulders. You can rule that out, right? So we have to go through the basic meanings of kafale because when we get to the main argument of our day, we come to two varying and differing meanings. Number one, 
kafale, head, means that it, it is something or someone of authority, or it means something that is a source of something else, okay? When I say source, I mean the head of a river is the mouth of the river. It is the source of the river. You following me? This is the argument between biblical manhood and womanhood and egalitarianism, which is everybody is mutually equal all across the board. And folks, that may not seem like a big problem, but it is the issue that the church has fought for 50 years. It is the problem in homes today when no one has stepped, no man is stepping up to the plate to be the male leader of the home and a woman is stepping up in place of her husband and trying to be the leader of the home. It is confusing and it's unbiblical. It's not what God designed. And so what we end up having is not just a breakdown in the home, but now we see that same ideology in the church. So if there is a mutual exclusive equality in the home, then there has to be a mutual equality in the church. Therefore, men and women can be pastors. Men and women can be leaders. And there goes the falling down on the slope. The degradation of these two main areas that we need to study. So my goal today is to show you that kafale should be translated as head meaning authority and not head meaning source. I believe that if the church takes the view that kafale means source, it will continue to plummet into this egalitarian and the degrading roles and functions of the family and church that God has designed in eternity past. Matter of fact, 23 years ago, another pastor, Bruce Ware, wrote this about the battle in the church with these feminist ideas. Quote, he said, Today, the primary areas in which Christianity is pressured by the culture to conform are on issues of gender and sexuality. Postmoderns and ethical relativists care little about doctrinal truth claims. They seem to be innocuous, archaic, and irrelevant to life, they say. What do they care about and and care about the vengeance, well, excuse me, what they do care about and care about with a vengeance is whether their feminist agenda and sexual perversions are tolerated, endorsed, and expanded in an increasingly neo-pagan landscape. Because that is what they care about most. It is precisely here that Christianity is most vulnerable. To lose the battle here is to subject the church to increasing layers of departure and surely it will not be long until ethical departures such as the church yielding to increasing uh, instances of women ordaining, being ordained in the pastoral ministry which will yield to even more central doctrinal departures like questioning whether scripture's inerrant teaching about manhood and womanhood renders it fundamentally untrustworthy for the Christian life. He, he concludes, I find it instructive that when Paul warns about the de- departure from faith in the latter days, he lists first, first ethical compromises and the searing of the conscience as a prelude to doctrinal departures. Long quote, but here's what Bruce Ware is basically saying. He's describing what we're facing today, and he wrote this 30 years ago. That's what he's doing. 
This is how important an understanding of this passage is. So we're going to do a couple things. Number one, I want to throw a couple verses at you so that you can understand why Paul would use the word head in this context to describe authority and not source. Paul would understand head because he is speaking from the Greek translation. He would understand the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And kafale would have been a word that he would have been familiar with, not only to mean the physical head, but to mean those who have authority over others. Let me give you a couple passages, just two. Number one, 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 1. Paul would have understood this passage, as we all should, with the use of the word head, kafale, to mean authority and not source. 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 8. Or chapter 8, verse 1. Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the father's households of the sons of Israel, to King Solomon in Jerusalem to bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord from the city of David, which is Zion. Here, these heads of the tribes are authorities over the people of Israel, over the tribes of Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 13. Speaking about the nation of Israel... The Lord will make you, he says, the head and not the tail. And you will be above. You will be not underneath if you listen to the commandment of the Lord your God, which I charge you today to observe them carefully. Paul is speaking to them physically of the head, but metaphorically that they would be head above all the other nations in authority, in rule and power, not as the source of other nations, as some people might try to describe. There are many other examples. We don't have time to look at all the different examples of Old Testament passages where the word head is translated as authority. Let's go to the New Testament. Paul's other writings where he used the word kafale in a way that demonstrates authority. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 22. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him, Jesus, as head over all things to the church. There's two words there you need to understand. The word head, meaning authority, and the helpful, modifying word, subjection. There you have the idea of authority, and you have all things under that authority who are to subject to Christ as our Lord and King. Paul is talking about the preeminent authority of the Lord Jesus Christ that the Father gave to the Son so that He may rule and reign. Jesus is not the source of the church in this passage, although we could say that's true. He is literally talking about the work of Christ bringing about a display of His authority that's been given to Him by the Father. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22 the most famous of passages, the most clear, which also, by the way, include submission and authority. Wives, be subject or submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. 
There we have again the call for wives to submit to the authority and the leadership of their husbands because the husbands have been given authority and responsibility over their wives just as Christ was given authority and leadership over the church. Two more, both in Colossians chapter 2, verse 10 We're told that in Him, Christ, you have been made complete, and He is the head over all rule and authority. Now, we can interpret that by itself in many different ways, but Paul is specifically talking about Christ being Lord over all, including even the spiritual principalities and powers of this world. He says that in verse 15 of that same chapter. When Jesus had disarmed the rulers and authority, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Because of the triumph of Christ upon the cross, because of his redemptive work, Christ was given head and leadership and authority over all people, all things, all of creation given to Him by the Father, including the very demonic principalities and powers that we know and understand that He disarmed when He died upon the cross. He put them to open shame. He triumphed over them through His death and resurrection. Now to our passage in 1 Corinthians 11. Paul again is trying to communicate to us that there is a proper order in God's good design whereby God established an authority and a subjection that is necessary and good and perfect. It is not an obstacle to your existence. It is not a failure of God's good plan. It is exactly what God designed before sin ever entered into the world. See, one of the skeptical and critical marks of biblical manhood and womanhood is that all these things happened after the fall. And so therefore, our struggle, men, to be biblically uh, related or or, or leading our families, that that we do such a thing, this design is a post-sin infected design. But if you go back to Genesis, and we don't have time to go back there today, you will see, no, God originally designed the man to have the authority and the leadership in the home, so much so that when Eve committed sin and fell into temptation by eating the forbidden fruit, and God came to hold them accountable, He went to Adam and not Eve, reflecting that authority, reflecting that leadership. Eve was the one that ate the apple, or the fruit. Eve is the one who took that temptation to her husband who should have been protecting her and and, and leading her in a proper way. But instead, she was the one who committed the offense and yet the Lord went to Adam holding him accountable as as the one who has been placed in authority. And so Paul wants us to understand in verse 3 of chapter 11... Three things, three main foundational truths that we're going to look at. Number one, Christ is the authority of every man, of every man. 
The Lord Jesus Christ is the Lord of every man in this earth. Now, you can include every woman, but particularly every man. That no matter they, whether they submit to His authority or they deny His authority, He is their authority. He is their Lord. He is their King. This is the very claim of the Gospel. When we take forth the good news of the Gospel, we have to help people understand and see that whether they obey Christ, whether they even believe in Christ, they are under His leadership. They are under His authority. And they will be judged by that authority. So if they deny Him, He will judge them. If they rebel against Him in sin, He will judge them. Because all sin must be accounted for by the wrath of God. And therefore, they are under His authority and leadership. And so Paul makes very clear for us, with the definition that Christ is the head of every man. He's not saying here that Christ is the source of every man, although that's a true statement. Yes, we find our origin and our source in Christ. But the whole point of chapter 11 in the first 16 verses is that the the church in Corinth had fallen out of order. Fallen out of order in distinction between the genders and sexes. Fallen out of order in their Lord's Supper ordinances. Fallen out of order in the use of spiritual gifts. The church was in disarray. And this is why he is laying forth this in this situation with head coverings. Paul makes clear for us, just like we read in Colossians and Ephesians, that He is the one who is the head of every man. So yes, we understand He's the head of the church, but the Lord has given Him rule and reign over all. Secondly, men, we are told, are head over the women. Now this is where egalitarians and the feminist movement really push hard for this definition to be men are the source of the women. Okay? So you need to understand this argument. We even read in chapter 7 or in chapter 11 that, that the argument that woman actually came from man, which some would say solidifies the argument that Paul is talking about man being the source of the woman. Of course, he's referencing the fact that woman came from Adam's rib. But again, in establishing a proper order, it doesn't help us to define kafale as the source when he's saying, no, man has been given authority over woman. And church, that does not just mean in the home. We must understand that that is a creation ordinance. That God has so established men across the world to have leadership responsibilities for women, to be protectors for women. This by no means disqualifies women for for value. This does not make you inferior. You are equal in the eyes of God. You have uh, uh, equal value and worth. This does not remove or subjugate you to some lesser value or worth before God. What it does do is it distinctly defines function and role as different between men and women. It does. It shows us that in the complementarian position, 
God has gifted men and God has gifted women with unique abilities and gifts that when we acknowledge the beautiful good design of God, that we will understand that we were so created as men and women to work together, complementing one another. These are not offensive distinctions. These are complementary distinctions. There are things men can do. First Peter tells us that woman is the weaker vessel. And women for the last six, 60 or 70 years have tried to prove that they are just as strong as men. We are literally in a debate right now in women's sports where, where men dressed as women are trying to compete with other women so that they can be victorious. They are thus proving, First Peter, that, that physiologic, the, the physiological differences, the biological differences between the male body and the female body is, is indisputable. And yet... With surgeries and hormones and therapies and all these things, it is a constant battle for someone to recreate what God never created. He just do, he didn't create it that way. But when women and men accept the biblical truth of biblical manhood and womanhood, complementarianism, we see the gifts that we have been given, we acknowledge those gifts so that we complement one another. One pastor said that it's a similar role in the church. In the church, you have elders and you have deacons in leadership. And deacons are not inferior to elders. They have spiritual gifts and they have spiritual uh, abilities that are to serve the church in unique and special ways. But the elders have been given authority in the church, not the deacons. So that doesn't make deacons inferior or lesser members of the church. They are equally valuable and worthy in the church, and yet they serve differently than those that they are, who are in authority over them. And so we too must understand that the scope of biblical manhood and womanhood is that every man has been given a leadership and responsibility as head over a woman. And with the last 50 or 60 years with the feminist movement, which by the way is under attack now by the LGBTQ movement, if you've ever followed that, that literally they are, they are just consuming one another because they're both anti-God and anti-biblical. But what we see, ladies in particular, is in these last 50 or 60 years, you have been told to prove yourself to be just as equal to a man. You have been told that. And that is, that is brewing inside of you. That's why I told you to push those presuppositions out. And men... You have so been trained by the people in your lives that you let it happen. You let it happen. You have watched daddies and granddaddies not lead properly in the home to submit to whatever mama said. Remember, a happy wife is a what? A happy life, right? That's the, that's the motto of life that we learn. And instead, we men have sat back lazily, apathetically, quietly, 
Not leading the way that we're supposed to lead. Not standing firm on what the Word of God says. Or taking that leadership to an extreme and becoming the dictator of our home, becoming the Stalin of our home. As one pastor recently said, he told his kids when, he could, when they could and could not go to the bathroom. It's a little too far. It's a little too far. So we have to understand what it means to be the head of the home. To be a fatherly leader. To be a loving husband. In 1987, a group of evangelicals, I told you, formed the Council of Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. And as the church has done throughout its history, formed statements and creeds to define what they believe. In 1987, the Danvers Statement originated in Danvers, Massachusetts where proper uh, or evangelicals came together and they formulated a proper view of manhood and womanhood that's laid out in God's Word. I wanted to read a couple statements of affirmation that they put in there to help us understand a proper role. They said, quote, In the home, the husband's loving, humble headship tends to be replaced by domination or passivity. The wife's intelligent, willing submission tends to be replaced by usurpation or civility. In the church, sin inclines, they say, men toward a more worldly love of power or an abdication of spiritual responsibility and therefore inclines women to resist limitations on their roles or to neglect the use of their gifts in appropriate ministries. This is the dangers that we've seen. And so what we come to understand then, church, is that because of Christ, that even though we struggle in these roles and we struggle in understanding them, Christ redeems them. So when we are transformed in Christ, Christ therefore aids us to be the husbands and the wives that we need to be. As according to or according to the design that He has given us. So in redemption, men, Christ will make you a husband that He wants you to be. Wives to be the wives that they need to be. Matter of fact, again, quoting the biblical uh, foundations for manhood and womanhood, they write, In the family, husbands should forsake harsh or selfish leadership and grow in love and care for their wives. Wives should forsake resistance to their husband's authority and grow in willing, joyful submission to their husband's leadership. In the church, redemption in Christ gives men and women an equal share in the blessings of salvation. Nevertheless, some governing and teaching roles within the church are restricted to only men, end quote. So we therefore must continue to strive by the power of Christ and His Holy Spirit through the instruction of the Word that does not change to understand, Lord, how is it that You want me to lead my family? How is it that You want me to be the head of my home? Ladies, how is it that You want me, Lord, to submit to my husband in a way that honors Christ? This is what Paul is trying to define for us in chapter three or chapter 11, verse 3. Christ is the head of every man. The man is the head of a woman. And God, finally, is the head of Christ. 
I could preach another sermon on this last statement. It's a strange statement to many. Christ is the head, or excuse me, God is the head of Christ. Now we understand that to mean, one, that he's talking about God the Father. God the Father is the head or the authority of the Son. Now, if I say it this way, it doesn't sound weird. The Father has authority over the Son. That doesn't sound weird. If I tell my son that today, Peter, I have authority over you, my son, that doesn't sound strange. What rubs us in our theology is is that we understand Jesus to be the second person of the Trinity, to be equal to the Father and equal to the Spirit. So how does the co-equal three persons of the Trinity... Equal in essence and being, how do we believe then that one of those persons submits to the other person of the Godhead? And the answer is, because the Bible tells me so. (laughs) That's what it says. And believe it or not, it's all over the Bible. Because when we begin to understand what theologians call the subordination of the Son to the Father, what we understand is, And what we must be clear is that the the triune God that we worship is one God in three persons. And they are one God in three persons. They are all equally God. The Father is no greater of, of God than the Son. He has no greater percentage or lesser percentage. They are all equally God. Three, one God, three persons. But again, in connection to what Paul is talking about, He is showing us that while there can be equality, there can also be a different and distinction function. Just as much as there is in the home, where the husband and wife are equal in the eyes of God and yet with different function, He's showing us the greatest example is in the Godhead itself. That in the Godhead, we have Father, Son, and Spirit. And what do we see throughout Christ's life? A, sub, a subordination and a subjection to the Father's will and purpose. Over and over again, we see Jesus came to do what? Obey the will of the Father. That it was the Father in eternity past that sent the Son, and the Son willingly submitting to that plan and purpose of the Father so that He might carry out redemption. So therefore, understanding then that when it says God is the head of Christ, we are talking about Jesus being, serving in a different role and a different function, and yet having the same infinite divine nature as the Father and the Spirit. P.T. Forsyth writes it this way, Father and Son coexist, co-equal in the spirit of holiness, of perfection. But Father and Son in a relation inconceivable except the Son be obedient to the Father. What he means is, is that you can't understand a proper relationship between the Father and the Son if you don't include obedience in that relationship. That that cannot be removed. That is how God has revealed Himself to us. As an obedient Son, second person of the Trinity, doing what? Submitting to the will of the Father. He continues, 
The perfection of the Son and the perfecting of His holy work lay not in a suffering, but in in obedience. And as He was eternal Son, it meant an eternal obedience. But obedience is not conceivable without some form of subordination. Yet in His very obedience, the Son was co-equal with the Father. The The Son's yielding will was no less divine than the Father's will. Therefore, in the same nature of God, subordination implies no inferiority. So what's Paul doing here? He's saying, if you want to understand a proper order, look first to the Godhead. Because there's, if there's authority and submission in the Godhead, then what's wrong with there being authority and submission in the home? And authority and submission in the church between men and women? This is the very key example that we must understand. A couple passages that teach us this. Acts chapter 2 verse 23. This man delivered over, speaking of Jesus, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Who delivered Jesus over to the cross? Well, Paul or Luke tells us in Acts 2, that he was, de- he was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. In eternity past, the Father planned and determined that the Son would be crucified to be the Redeemer and the Lord of all. Not when sin came into the world, before sin ever entered into the world. 1 Corinthians 15, 27 and 28. For He has put all things in subjection under His feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is, expect, he is expected who put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. Cliff Notes version, the Father is putting all things in subjection under the feet of Jesus, In doing so, Jesus is submitting to the Father in receiving that rule and authority. It's literally an act of obedience by Christ to receive the gift of of the world, and particularly the church, receiving that under His authority and leadership. So all this gives us a proper order. A proper way to see God's good design. And it helps us see it so that we might live and function in this world as a church that is doing and living in biblical ways. So men, how are you fulfilling your purpose as a leader in your home and in the church? you got to ask yourself this question. What is the spiritual aptitude of the church, the men in this church like? Are we the leaders in our homes? Are we the leaders in this body? Do we allow all the women to be take care of all the praying and all the Bible study? Or are we doing what is necessary to be the spiritual leaders, not in just the home, but in the church and even in the world? In the way that we interact with people in the world? taking leadership and ownership and responsibility as people who are to impact this world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't shout out an evaluation grade or anything, but 
Ask yourself that question. Ladies, how are you living in such a way that displays humble submission to men in your home, in your church, in the world? Now, we have to be careful there. It's appropriate submission, and yet, nonetheless, it's submission. This is how God has designed it. You will be called crazy. You will be called old-fashioned and archaic. And it's only because you believe a Bible that doesn't change. It's pretty old. Stick with it. Believe it. Embrace the roles and the gifts that God has given you, ladies. Because your gifts are irreplaceable. Your purposes are invaluable. And there is nothing in this world that will offer you the things that you can accomplish by living according to God's good design. If you do it as a mother, as a grandmother, as a leader in your church over women and other, other, other people, in appropriate positions, God will use you. As missionaries across the world, God will use you. Find a way to serve and do what God has called you to do and do it according to His Word. Be faithful in it. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for...